So today we're going to talk about uh, multiply, making disciples uh, of all nations. And uh, it's interesting because we're going to do it a little in a way that we're going to accentuate the upside downness of what um, uh, the Lord does as he makes disciples. And we're going to emphasize the theme of Christ being lifted up in the Gospel of John. And we'll see how that all unfolds as a pathway to uh, offering ministry to the nations. Now, I can, I can think of my own experience of uh, going out to the nations. Uh, I've talked about this not too long ago, about going to uh, Poland. I was there for Easter, so I brought my, off my magnet uh, picture here of Mark and Naomi Hale and their kids, uh, two of whom are married now, so they're kind of spreading out. But uh, when I think of missionaries, I, I got to be a missionary, and I appreciate so much the fact that Harvest was a supporting church and prayed for and supported me as I was doing those ministries. Well, one of the things I got to do was to go and be with Mark and Naomi Hale, uh, general, general, about annually. But it was never hard to go visit and care for the Hales because Naomi, here's a little secret who I'm going to really celebrate here, Naomi Hale always had a banana cream pie waiting for me when I showed up. <laughs> Somehow she knew that that was my ultimate favorite pie, and there was always a banana cream pie waiting for me. And her family loved it because that was the only time. They said, oh, it, she only makes them when you come, Ron. I'm going, well, bless her that she does it at least that, that often. But I'm going to talk about uh, the Hales as being great missionaries. But a lot of times we'll think of missionaries as people like the Hales who are over there, who go off and do ministry in other places. And uh, sometimes we get to have people who come here from other places, and we get to care for them too. Um, but there's, there's need for maybe more of a, kind of an awareness of what it is to share uh, Christ with the nations, share Christ with those around us. So let me pray as we launch into our time in the Word together and think about this theme of making disciples of all nations. Lord, we, we ask that you would cultivate our hearts, awaken our hearts to your mission, to your ambition, and that you would bring a, about greater multiplication. I appreciated so much what Greg talked about last week with uh, this whole idea of multiplying uh, the linkages between us as disciples and then as we share with others who then share with others, the Second Timothy kind of idea of, of, of giving away that which we've received. And I pray that we could come to that insight in a stronger way than ever before today through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, relational connections really make a difference. I, I had a chance to go to lunch with Steve yesterday. Well, it doesn't matter who Steve is, but he's been a marking figure in my life. And as we had lunch, we told stories and we exchanged all kinds of elements of mutual appreciation. That's what we do. That's the life that we live. And um, so the question is, how did Jesus offer an example for us in how to reach the nations and how does he call us into that role as we looked at yesterday or last week, the call to make disciples of all the nations? Well, he does it in a way that will surprise us. We're going to start, though, with the impulse that we all have to climb. Have you ever noticed that? We like to go to the head of the class. We, silver stars are nice, bronze stars are nice, but gold stars are the best. We really want to, you know, climb to the peak of the pyramid 
and uh, be the successful people, if at all possible. And we'll find that the Bible does, in fact, talk about this idea of uh, being elevated, of being lifted up. In fact, in um, Isaiah, let me just pick it up in Isaiah, a theme that we'll, we'll be referring to a little bit from John, because John harks back to Isaiah. It starts in uh, chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Uh, each had six wings, and two, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they called back and forth to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We also find later on in Isaiah 52, uh, another one of the great statements that uh, is about being lifted up. Behold my servant, 52.13, Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But it goes on and it, it all of a sudden starts with a theme that we're going to then come to as we come to John, his appearance was so marred that he was beyond human semblance. Uh, it goes on and talks about his being despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with, acquainted with grief. And we all like sheep have gone astray, and the sins of all of us were put upon him. So all of a sudden we get this discord, this reversal, this getting to the pyramid high and lifted up, and all of a sudden a reversal, death and dying. So that's what we're going to trace a little bit in the Gospel of John, because that will be the secret for us to be more effective in ministry once we understand the pathway that Jesus paid for us in being high and lifted up. So as we go uh, into John, we'll start with John 3. Most of us will know a good verse to memorize. If you haven't memorized John 3.16, it's a good passage. For God so... Does anyone know that one? God so loved the world that... Come on. Gave his only son, whoever believes in him. Everlasting life. There it is. And that's what we want. Everlasting life. That's what we want for the nations, that we could have all of that. But do we know the context of that passage? And that's what I want to start with because it involves the lifting up theme that I want to trace. We want to look at three places in John's gospel where he uses the theme and explains the theme of being lifted up this being elevated as a basis for ministry and mission to the nations. So let me start in verse 6 of chapter 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's talking to Nicodemus there. Nicodemus, who is at the peak of the pyramid, he's one of the top figures, one of the Sanhedrin, members of the leadership, spiritual leadership for the nation of Israel in that day. And he comes to Jesus, and perhaps attempting to negotiate with Jesus, seeing that Jesus is able to do miracles. He see, he's basically saying, I see you must be from God. The work that you're doing is incredible. And uh, so Jesus says, well, hey, Nick, you need to be born again. That's, before we can go anywhere in our conversation, let me just get to that fundamental point. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, and by the way, wind is the underlying Greek word pneuma. Um, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear, the, hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma, the spirit. So he's using the analogy, the use of the same word, playing on the word pneuma. Pneumatics, we use that word in our own language. 
The idea that the wind blows, and so the effect of the Spirit in a life is to bring life and movement. And that's what you don't have, Nick. You need that. Nicodemus said to him, uh, I don't get it. Well, in his own words, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? So it could be that he's actually in charge of the ministry of education. We're not sure. And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, that is, get out your highlighter. I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, you have to be born again. Um, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now Jesus is trying to say, the platform for my sharing this message with you, this important truth that you have to be born again, comes from my awareness, and I want to give you a bigger picture of who I am. Your view of me is too small. And he, he says uh, that... Uh, 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 as mo uh, he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, that's who he is. No one has ascended uh, into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, and here I am to talk to you. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, that's the punchline I wanted to get to. Before we get to 16, we have verses 14 and 15. And that's the basis for this truth that whoever believes in Jesus can have eternal life. And this analogy of the serpent that's lifted up in the wilderness is that Jesus says, so I also need to be lifted up for that ministry to take place, for you to have eternal life. For the Spirit to come and give you the life that you don't have right now, Nick, this has got to be accomplished so Jesus is forecasting something yet to come that's being lifted up. And what he does is he goes to Numbers chapter 21, 6 through 9. So let's see what that has to do with Jesus being lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness. So back in chapter 21 of Numbers, the book of Numbers is an interesting book in that it traces the people of Israel uh, being drawn out to be coming to, with God into the promised land. But as we, if you know that story, they come up to the borders of Canaan, which is the promised land. They're ready to receive the benefit of moving into the land of milk and honey, and they're going to finally have a place to settle. And this is where God is going to have a home in their midst, and they're able to be God's people, and he will be their God. Uh, they send in 12 scouts, they call them spies, and they come back terrified. They come back with the, what we call the grasshopper syndrome. They said, we're like grasshoppers in the eyes of those Anakim, those big, might, mighty, giantish people. And uh, two of them say, yeah, but God's on our side, that's no problem. The other 10 say, no, we can't do it. And so they turn away in fear, and God says, do you not trust me? Well, I'll tell you what, since you don't trust me, I don't want to team up with people who don't trust me. So, I'll let you stay in the wilderness, since that seems to be your preference, since you've got the grasshopper view of, of yourselves, and I'm going to let your children go into the land, but you get to have 40 years in the wilderness, and you will die for your lack of faith. Doesn't sounds a little harsh, but in fact, it's realistic. God says, if you're going to be my people, you must trust me. You must follow me. 
And so they start to go into the wilderness for 40 years, the whole generation, they cycle around and circle around. And one of the places where they camp out happens to be rich with pit vipers, snakes, poisonous snakes, fiery snakes. And so that's what we pick up here in chapter 21. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And, uh, of course, that for the 40 years, that's the whole story. They're dying. And yet God in his mercy responds when the people come to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So there's the punch, there's the punchline, look and live. All you do is, it, we, he doesn't explain how looking at this bronze model of a snake on a pole is going to bring life, but just trust God, and that's the punchline. Trust me, look and live. So that's what Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, your role of believing in me is to look and live. Sometimes we'll wrestle with, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? How hard? What am I supposed to do? The answer is look and live. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Now, what's really intriguing about that, I'm going to pause it. I'm going to suggest possibility. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I think that what's really going on there, that, you know, the medical profession actually uses the snake around the pole as a sign of healing. Well, I think what really is accurate here would be that this is a, uh, looking back to the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent's head is going to be, the, the seed of the serpent is going to have its head crushed by the, by the seed of the woman. Speaking of Eve, who's being talked to by God then, said, uh, your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. And in the process, his heel will be bruised, uh, not a killing blow, but for the serpent a killing blow. So, so here's the picture of the serpent being judged and in its death wrapped around the pole. And God says, I'm going to solve the problem of evil, sin, and death. And Jesus says, so that's who I am. When I'm lifted up, I'm going to be the one to whom you look and live. So whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. So this theme of everlasting life then continues through John. And I want to go to the second passage then that takes up this theme of uh, lifted up. And that's in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we'll pick it up here in verse 26. He says, I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I, de and I declare to the world uh, what I have heard from him. Now they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and it has in our version, he, but it really is just the words, I am. Then you'll realize that I am. At the end of this chapter, Jesus once again, as they're ready to kill him, so things go downhill from this, this bit of the talk that he's having with them, and they are picking up stones to kill him, and, and he's... And he said, uh, he said, you know, Abraham was looking forward to my day. And they said, you're not old enough to have known Abraham. And he says, oh, no, before Abraham was, I am. So once again, the statements of I am, there's actually, uh, it, it, this section starts with 
8.12, I am the light of the world. So Jesus, as he's talking about himself, he's trying to explain who he is in light of the Father. He's aligned with the Father. He's from the Father. He represents the Father. And he uses the language of the, that we tend to think of as from the Father, the language of I am, which goes back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is to bring the people out of captivity, and he's told by God, your job is to bring the people out of captivity. And you'll remember that story, going all these Old Testament stories here, of Moses walking along, just herding his sheep. He's actually tried to rescue the people and then had to run for cover when the Pharaoh tried to kill him. So as he's now settled as a shepherd, 80-some-year-old shepherd in the wilderness, uh, he sees this bush that looks like it's on fire, but it's not on fire. It actually has a fiery presence within it. And it turns out to be the angel of the Lord, who is full of glory. He looks like he's on fire in the same way, by the way, that Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration says to three of his disciples, come on, I'll show you who I really am. And he goes up the Mount of Transfiguration and says, here I am. And they go, whoa. And he says, okay, that's enough. Just so you know who I am. That's who he really is. I'm going to suggest that that was actually Jesus with Moses in the bush that looked like he was on fire because it says no one has seen God at any time, the Father. Jesus is the one who makes him known. And anytime we see God on two legs, we, we will think of that as a Christophany or a theophany. And Jesus now in the New Testament is using the language of I am because when Moses says, what's your name? I've got to tell the people, who is this one that's come and told us that he's going to rescue you? And uh, this angelic being, this, this glorious reality, this Christophany, actually says, well, my name is I am. And he uses, is converted into Yahweh. Just tell them that Yahweh, I am, who I am, has sent you. And so now Jesus is using that language in John chapter 8. I am. Yeah, I am. I am. And they're going, whoa, you really have elevated yourself in a way that's inappropriate. You're just a man. And he says, I am. And so he's the one who wants us to know who he is. And he's being lifted up in the process, isn't he? So enough about that. Let's go step forward to the third use of lifting up the Son of Man, which is in John chapter 12. Now, in John 12, it's right at the end of Christ's life on earth. He's ready to go to uh, the upper room, have his last time with the disciples. This is getting just before the upper room discourse where he speaks to them and has this uh, sweet time of sharing and fellowship where he's kind of saying, here's the future. Here's the way to eternal life. This is how I want you to go out and share with the nations the truth about who I am this call to mission. And in the process, it says, uh, now among those, this is at the feast of the Passover, there were some Greeks. Uh, so what we uh, presume here is that these are what we call, uh, we've talked about this before earlier in Acts, these would be uh, God seekers, those who were proselytes, coming to be converted to Judaism so they could have access to the God of Israel because they'd come to believe that he must be the only true and real God. 
and they're hearing about Jesus, and they want to find out about Jesus. So they come to, it says here, they came to Philip. Now, Philip is interesting. You may not have picked this up, but Philip is not a Jewish name. Samuel, Shemuel would be a Hebrew name. David would be a Hebrew name. Philip, not so much. Who is famously the most Philip of all the Philips, after whom people would be named? Philip of Macedon, who was the great conqueror and whose son was an even greater conqueror, Alexander the Great, and they were Greeks from Macedon, north of Greece. And so Greece had become the great and powerful cultural reality even among the Romans. And so to be named Philip would be to look back to Philip of Macedon. Well, a group of Greeks, you don't get named Philip without speaking Greek, okay? And in fact, it mentions that he, it says Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee. Galilee was known as the mixing area, the, the place where the Jews and the Gentiles would gather and connect with each other. And the Gentiles would generally speak Greek. So he's probably a Greek speaker. He's from the Galilee. And these Greek people say, hey, you are one of the crowd that are hanging out with Jesus. Could you introduce us to Jesus? And uh, so, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So interesting, in this missional episode, we're seeing that it's actually the people coming with an appetite uh, that makes the difference here. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip then went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. And now here's the piece that I want to toy with a little bit. Does he really answer them or does he not? They want to see Jesus. And guess what Jesus does? he gets into an agricultural discourse about seed planting. Have you ever thought about that? Why doesn't he answer the question? Jesus, just answer the question. We're crying out loud. Make the sermon shorter. Goodness gracious, we got sunshine out there. We want to take advantage. Well, instead, Jesus talks about germinating seeds and seeds. I'll read it. So, Jesus answered, the hour has come. Now notice the hour. He's been looking for the hour's not yet. The hour's not yet if you read through the Gospel of John. Now it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, there's the highlighter again. I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, it germinates. That's how you get a crop. You've got your seed grain, your seed corn, and then it grows in multiplication, and you get a harvest. So he goes on, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for, now here's the key word that we started with back with Nicodemus, eternal life. Oh, by the way, this life is just here and gone. I'm now, I'm 74. I'm an old guy. I remember when I was 24. I remember when I was 14. It just goes, bam, it goes fast. And everlasting life lasts a long time, a really long time. And which is preferable, this life or eternal life? And that's what Jesus is saying. Get serious about eternal life, not this mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. So as he, go, he goes on and he says, now, where did I leave off here? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. We're back to the hour theme. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now we're going to shift into the theme of glory because that's an attached theme to this idea of being lifted up. To be lifted up, to be glorified. We read that back in Isaiah chapter 6. So, time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And guess what happens? Glorify your name. A voice came from heaven. God doesn't speak often, but when he does, it's good to listen. And what does he say? Glorify your name. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Well, the crowd goes, what was that? Well, actually, he says, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. So you recognize it was a big booming sound. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, no, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, here's the punchline, when I am lifted up, from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And you see what he does? He just turns everything upside down. Because we tend to think of elevation, status, standing, glory as climbing up to the peak so that we are more honored than anyone else in our class, more honored than anyone else in our workplace, more honored, more exalted, more glorified than others. And what Jesus does is let's just reverse that and recognize that death, being buried, is the only place where real multiplication is going to take place. If there's going to be the spreading of the gospel to the nations, it's going to come through people who enter into the earth and die to all that Satan has to offer in this world that he rules. Until we die to the schemes and themes of the devil, which are all about human glory, and enter into the glory of Jesus, which is about the crucifixion on the cross, And there's the surprise. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he is glorified. And he goes on and he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So there's the answer to the Greeks. The Greeks want to see me. They want to be with me. First, I need to die. And then they will see who I really am. It's in the cross, the crucifixion, that I break the power of death. And that's what he says here. I am breaking the power of the world, the enemy, the judgment of the world. The rule of the world is going to be cast out. We find that, again, back in Isaiah, in chapter 25, it says that Jesus, or the one who will come to this mountain in Jerusalem, this one will have a banquet, and he will swallow death. Good. Because if he doesn't swallow death, my death is the end of me and yours for you. But when he swallows death, and then as it says in Acts chapter 3, we've seen this earlier in our theme, if you've been here, in Acts where Peter comes and says to the religious rulers who are all upside down, that is they think they're right side up, but they have this glory vision of being more significant than others. He says, your problem is that you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. 
But guess what? Death cannot hold the author of life. He has power over death. It cannot hold him. He's bigger than death. And he's the only one that has that power because he is the creator. And nothing can hold him back from life. And so when he's raised from the dead, that's the end of the enemy's control. That is the fear of death that everyone lives with of, oh, how can I live successfully before I die? And how do I get a good retirement fund so I can die happy? See, if that's all that we're living for, we are fools beyond fools. And so it's in the cross that we discover where real life is to be found, where eternal life, the gateway to eternal life, is to be found and is available. Now, it goes on, and I cite uh, another verse here from the same chapter, chapter 12, uh, 37 to 41. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, this is back in Isaiah chapter 6, the, where I cited the, the Lord is high and lifted up. If we were to continue reading that passage, it goes on to say, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they cannot, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. So, what he's saying here is that that passage in chapter 6. The Lord is high and lifted up, and he has the, the various angelic cherubim that are around him. Who is that? That's Jesus. And Isaiah saw his glory high and lifted up. And that's Jesus, the one who conquers death, high and exalted, inviting everyone to come and be with him. And so there's the question, are we living with the glory that this world offers, or are we going to live with the glory that Jesus, who is truly high and lifted up, but he's high and lifted up because on the cross he said, I will die for everyone's sins. And whoever looks and lives, believes in me, will have eternal life. Just look and live. And that takes us then to the celebration in chapter 17, that now we, we move to the theme of glory because through looking and living, we get to the theme of eternal life. And here Jesus is just praying to the Father. It's his high priestly prayer. At the end of this extended time where Jesus, it starts in chapter 12 that we've been reading about, chapter 13, we go up to 17. It's all one big block, and Jesus has the upper room time with his disciples. We'll celebrate that with our communion in a few minutes here. And Jesus basically says, Father, the hour has come, once we back to the hour idea of his crucifixion, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life. Now, by the way, this is not on the screen, but I'm reading it from chapter 1, 17, verses 2 and 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So if we really want to know about God, we have to go back to the origins, that is before the creation, and what was it like? And the answer is a party. The glory that I had with you before the creation. Father, I want them to be with me 
in the future with the glory that I had with you from before the creation. And I want to bring my people into that glory. That's eternal life. That's the future that I have in mind for them. So we move ahead to the verses that we have on the screen. I do not ask for these only, but for those in Camus who will believe in me, I'm sorry, I added that, through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me, Father. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. How do we get to that status of being so deeply loved that there's no, you could not slice the space, there is no space between the love the Father has for the Son and the love the Father has for us. That's astonishing. That's what we have available. But do you remember back in chapter 12? If anyone wants to be with me in eternity, they need to come down into the earth with me and die with me. And then they can have life and share that life with others. And that's how those of us in Camas, in Clark County, in the Pacific Northwest, in the world at large today, have the message of Jesus available because people have ready, been ready to die with Jesus and then live with him in a new life where we're not living for this world, but for the next. Not living for this comfort, this security, this retirement, but for eternity in life to come. And Jesus says, oh, I can hardly wait. Because these are people who will recognize that glory doesn't come from what human glory offers, the glory that man gives, but from the glory that you give, Father. And I'm anxious for them to have that, that love that is just... I mean, how does God share that love so profoundly? And the answer, I don't know, just look and live. <laughs> look and enjoy. Go discover and taste and see that this is who God is. He is the Lord who is good. So now when we come back to the punchline, I was supposed to talk, kind of, this is a missional talk I'm supposed to be giving, and I'm talking here about all this theology, but here's the secret. Naomi, who I mentioned, the banana cream pie, special lady, uh, bless Mark for marrying her. I think Mark is a good buddy. <laughs> well, let me tell you about Naomi. She's magic in Poland. She is extraordinarily good in Polish. She has assimilated the Polish language, speaks Polish perfectly, and um, she does language training. Every Pole wants to learn English, and they love American English, and Naomi is the best. If you want to learn American English, and you live in Piotrkowski, middle of Poland, you go and you sign up to study with Naomi Hale for a year or two, and you will become a good English speaker. And guess what? Naomi has been crucified with Christ, and yet she lives. 
And the life she now lives, she lives by faith, looking and living at the Son of God who loved her and gave himself for her. So when people look at Naomi as they study for an hour, their 45-minute slot to do their English study, who do they actually get to see? Jesus Christ showing up in her life. She loves those folks. So I went to Easter in Poland. Where did I get my Polish dinner? You know, it's in Poland, it's a Catholic country. Easter's a big thing. But these were not believers, I, you know, people that had really come and worshiped Jesus. They were just cultural, you know, religious people, loosely speaking. But they invited Mark and Naomi and their kids and me, the stray wandering American who strolled in, to Easter supper, and it was about a five-course meal. And these were wealthy people who had a factory just across the street from where Mark and Naomi live. And they loved Naomi because she taught the ladies there how to speak English. And they were starting to love Naomi and love what Naomi and Mark stand for. And I was welcomed in their home for Easter supper. So what is it to share the gospel with the nations? Is it going out and finding pulpits and waving our fingers in the air? You could do that. But what's really effective? Getting buried with Jesus, coming to life with Jesus, and living for Jesus. So that the characteristic of our life is that we look and live. And others say, what are you looking at? I'm looking at Jesus. You need to get to know him. Who's Jesus? Well, I'll tell you about him if you're interested. The Greek says, who is Jesus? Can we talk to him? And guess what? Chapter 10 in John, I'm going to bring in all of John if I can here. I've got to finish. But, you know, uh, the blind ruler, the guy, the man born blind, and the disciples say, did he sin or his parents sin? Why did he get born blind? I mean, what a sad thing that this guy has been so degraded. And Jesus says, no, actually, the purpose of God is going to be shown in him. And by the time we finish chapter 9, guess who's worshiping Jesus? The man who was born blind. And as for the religious leaders around him who said, you cannot come into the synagogue because you have believed in Jesus. And we think he's demonic. And he says, well, if he's a demon and he's making me see when I was blind, I don't know what you're thinking, but you're wrong. And Jesus in chapter 10 then goes on. He says, look at my sheep. And he's speaking of this as one of, the, one of his sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and they will follow me. He also says, I've got sheep from other pastors that I need to draw in. So guess what? When we look and live, other people will inevitably come and say, what are you looking at? That's how you share the gospel with the nations. It's just look and live and let others look over your shoulder. It's not that hard. The question is, where's our gaze? Okay, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that as we're called to share the gospel in all, with all the nations, it's not hard work. Oh, it's a wonderful exercise, and we thank you that you've graciously sent your son to die, to be buried, and to be raised again, and to be the one to whom we can look and now live. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.